I think there is a lot of internalized capitalism and probably some fat phobia that comes in where it's like, oh, but my leisure should still be, quote unquote, good, Mm -hmm. right? I should use my leisure time to go on a walk. I -hmm. should work out. I should meditate. I should do something productive that contributes to something in some way. I shouldn't just lie on the couch and watch Netflix. But sometimes that is absolutely what we want and absolutely what we need. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. Today, I am chatting with Ash Brandon. Ash is a middle school teacher librarian with over a decade of teaching experience. Ash used their love of video games to connect with their students and enhance student learning in the classroom. Then they took this passion to Instagram and used their Instagram account, The Gamer Educator, to help caregivers navigate screen time boundaries, balance, and ensure screen time is benefiting the whole family. A lot of you are already Big Ash fans. I am too. I have followed them for a long time. They are the account I turn to on Instagram whenever I am feeling panicked about our family's relationship with screen time. So heads up that this whole episode is a little bit of a therapy session for me, but I think you're going to get a lot out of it too. We talk about how our attitudes towards screen time can intersect so much with diet culture and anti-fatness. There's a lot of unlearning we can all do, and Ash has a ton of great practical reframing tools and suggestions for you. So here is Ash, but first a quick break. Okay, it has been a while since I have read one of your reviews. So this one comes from Erin. They write, thanks to this podcast, I've been able to stop the endless search for a whole grain bread that my child will eat, let him have white bread, and see that this did not affect his health, and move on with my life. Thank you. Erin, thank you. And I am so excited about the white bread in your child's life. Hooray for toast or untoasted bread of any kind that is delicious. We love that. If you are finding this podcast helpful, I would love for you to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Just scroll down and tap the stars. We like five stars, please, and lots of better. So I want to disclose going into this, I'm a parent who regularly panics about screen time. I'm trying. I'm on my unlearning journey. Well, what's very funny is that I could say exactly the opposite. Like I have tried to do so much on learning around food and the associations <laughs> I have with food and eating to make sure I'm raising my kid very differently than yeah. my upbringing with it. And like, I'm still not there yet for myself, right? So we're totally. coming from different sides. But it's like very much the same conversation. Oh, yeah. very much. Yes. I do want to report one victory, which is this weekend. I think I spent three hours watching my 10-year-old play Animal Crossing oh. and... It was really good for both of us. We're at an age where there can be a lot of tween feelings, you know, spending a morning while her sister was on a play date, like really going down the Animal Crossing rabbit hole with her. I was like, wow, you like me (laughs) the whole rest of the day. (laughs) So I'm ready to do this unlearning. It was a helpful homework assignment I gave myself in anticipation of the conversation. Yeah, (laughs) well done. (laughs) Some exposure therapy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You posted a reel recently about the problems with the term screen time detox. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Ash needs to come on burnt toast. (laughs) Screen time diet culture is a thing. We need to get into this. Yeah. Well, I should say probably the go-to analogy I use most often when talking about screens is food. I make food analogies all the time. So I feel Mm -hmm. like this is just perfect pairing. So screen detox is a term that we see a lot, particularly from screen time 
platforms that are not necessarily really neutral about screen time. They're still coming from a place of maybe they're saying that they're neutral about screen time and Mm -hmm. like, oh, screens are a tool. But as soon as you start involving words like screen detox, very similar to food, immediately there's going to be an association there. If we need to detox from screens, then what does that imply that a screen is to begin with? And that implies that it is toxic or poisonous or somehow depleting us in some way that we need to escape from. And there are many things that can be kind of problematic about this. A kid hearing, you know, we're taking a detox from screens. Well, that messaging can be like, well, so this thing I really love is bad for me Mm -hmm. or this thing that I enjoy doing is somehow not good for me or I have to take a break from that. And that can kind of be confusing to a child who might really enjoy that and they're being allowed to do it. And now their parents is turning around and saying, well, now you can't do it anymore because you need to take a break from it because it's somehow bad for you. And it kind of puts us in a place of immediately entering a restrict and binge cycle with it. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. if we've allowed it, we feel like we've allowed it too much. And then our reaction is to say, oh, we need a detox. Well, that's restriction. And very similar to food, that's not necessarily a sustainable relationship with something like screens. If what we really want is for our kids to be able to have screens be just another neutral part of their lives, then we Mm kind of have to treat it as another neutral part of their lives. And that doesn't mean we allow it the same as every other part of their life. But the way we talk about it and the way we frame it can, I think, do a lot in that conversation. And there's also a whole lot, which you probably know way more about than I do, about the origins of talking about detox and the way that that really aligns with like a lot of racist and white supremacist ideas of beauty standards. I think there's many reasons to divest from that term when it comes to using it outside of food, but that's Mm -hmm. what really comes up for me. I've even seen folks who would identify as body positive activists or fat activists talk about like take a detox from social media with the goal of like seeing fewer normative beauty standards and to turn off a lot of diet culture noise, but I always bump on it because I'm like, wait, guys, why are we using that term? <laughs> right. Like, we don't we're... like it over here. Why do we right. argue with it over there? Right. What? Can we not see the disconnect here? Like, And I do think it can be useful to curate your feed or to you know take a break and notice how you feel without that diet culture noise, of course. But like, let's not invoke diet culture language to do that. Right. Because again, just as we can speak neutrally about the potential vice, right, such as screens, we can also speak neutrally about taking a break from it. And again, when we do that, it changes the way we're viewing it from like, I am being prevented from having this thing. And therefore, it's all I'm going to think about because scarcity Mm -hmm. is a real thing. And it just shifts it to, I'm going to pay attention to, like you said, how do I feel differently when I have you know, less time on a certain app or I don't follow this person or I put my phone away at this time or how does my kid respond when we go outside before screen time? How do they respond when we have 10 fewer minutes every day? And it puts us in a position of really looking at it like data and being Mm -hmm. able to really think about, okay, is this benefiting us in a positive way. Well, that didn't actually make any difference. I guess it doesn't matter. This made a huge difference. This is something I want to adopt into the way we have screens in our family. It becomes much more sustainable 
if we want to take a break, it's fine to say we're going to take a break. We can speak about that as neutrally as Mm -hmm. we would if we were like, we're going to watch a movie. I'm curious if there are other ways you see diet culture and anti-fatness showing up in broader conversations around screens. When people are kind of new coming to me, even people who have followed me for a long time, the like first thing that I feel like I have to address with people is we can't, I mean, we can, but it'll be much harder if we're trying to change the way we talk about screens or our kids' relationship to screens or our own family's relationship to screens. It's very hard to do that if we are not changing how we view screens in general as a Mm. source of leisure time, because that's essentially what they are. And I think that is often the crux of the problem. Sometimes you'll hear people say, what is screen time replacing? This is a phrase I really take a lot of umbrage with. I've never Mm. liked this phrase, but it is a common one you hear in a lot of parenting advice circles. Just ask yourself what screens are replacing. Imagine I said, it's fine to have cake. Just ask yourself, what's cake replacing? Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I hear it now. (laughs) And immediately, I'm sure you can kind of go, oh, oh, okay. And For me, my issue with the phrase, what is screen time replacing, is that if you are someone who thinks that there is something wrong with screens, then asking, what is it replacing? You're going to fill that with literally everything you can think of that you think is better than screens, which is like everything, right? Oh, they could be reading. They could be sitting and staring in space. They could be cleaning the banisters. They could be like, you're going to come up with everything that they could be doing because the implication there is screens should always come last. Screens should be done after literally every other thing worthy of doing has been done. And leisure has a purpose. Leisure is something we need in our lives. Rest, doing things we like purely for the sake of enjoyment, is something that we need. And I think even within leisure time, I think there is a lot of internalized capitalism and probably some fat phobia that comes in where it's like, oh, but my leisure should still be, quote unquote, good, Mm -hmm. right? I should use my leisure time to go on a walk. I -hmm. should work out. I should meditate. I should do something productive that contributes to something in some way, I shouldn't just lie on the couch and watch Netflix. But sometimes that is absolutely what we want and absolutely what we need. Like what you talked about with Animal Crossing, sometimes that is genuinely what we need. We just need some leisure. So I see some overlap there with we need to be able to say that there is validity in leisure for the sake of leisure, of doing something you like purely because you like it and not because of a skill or a productivity or a contribution that you or your kids might be getting out of it. So we're not just unpacking the diet culture of this. I feel like we're getting into perfectionism culture, Mm. the demonization of screen time. It feels like it's intersecting with so many other biases and identities that we are taught to hold. Yeah, I do think that. And I think that's why it's very hard for people because I don't hear that come up in this conversation very often. I'm sure there are other people saying it. But every time I bring it up, I feel like it's not something that we're hearing very much. And I think that's very hard, especially for caregivers of kids, because we feel our own pressure 
for our kids to be better than we were, or we need to be giving them what we didn't get, or we need to Mm -hmm. be setting them up for the most success. And that all still plays into it. Like, oh, if I let my kid play video games because they just want to play video games, what does that say about me as a parent? What does that say about me as a caregiver if I am letting them, you know, quote unquote, letting them do something that is a quote unquote waste? And I think there's also a pretty clear through line there to this myth of like laziness. Mm -hmm. And I think that can probably go into a anti-fatness and fatphobic place pretty easily, this idea of like, oh, well, that's not a good use of time. It's a waste. It's lazy. But again, just reminding ourselves like all leisure is worthy of time and we all need leisure. And I think we will recognize it in ourselves sometimes, you know, who hasn't sat down and re-watched a show for the 10th time totally because you don't want to think. Because you need a break. I need to actually evacuate my brain for an hour or whatever. Exactly. Or you re-listen to the same album over and over again. You read a book over and over again because you want to escape, because you want something comforting. And it's not unreasonable to think that our kids might want that same feeling from technology as well. And I think people worry, again, probably a lot of overlap here. I think they worry that, okay, I can see that theoretically, But if I were to allow it, then I'm sending the message that it's okay to do that all the time. But that Mm -hmm. sounds kind of absurd. Like we model it in our own lives. We model watching TV and then we get up and we do other things. We model that balance and we can have leisure and fun be part of our kids' lives. And that doesn't mean it's going to be all they ever do. We wouldn't let them take a bath for three hours. We put boundaries around other (laughs) parts of their lives. We still keep them morally neutral. Right. If our kid wanted to stay in the bath for hours, we wouldn't blame the bath for them having a hard time. My child has too much bath time. Right. We wouldn't be like, oh, it's all that dopamine you're getting from the warm water. Like we wouldn't go there (laughs) because we'd recognize like transitions are hard. They don't want to end something fun. Like we would see the reason behind it. But I think that feeling of like, oh, my gosh, I must be doing something bad. You know, I must be bad. Mm -hmm as a caregiver or as an adult, really comes through with screens and technology, probably also with food. I do frequently hear from readers and listeners who are more uncomfortable with the screen time relationship of their kid in a bigger body versus a thin kid. And I think that's something that's really interesting to explore. I heard this a lot, especially during the pandemic. Pandemic weight game got tied to increased screen time Mm -hmm. in this, you know, very, as opposed to like, bodies changed because it was years passing and also Mm -hmm. stressful time. I think we have to say, who do we allow to have screen time? Like, who do we feel more okay with having the screen time? Oh, absolutely. We see that too with aspects of neurodiversity and neurodivergence, Mm -hmm. which I speak kind of broadly about, but I try not to get too in the weeds about because that's not an expertise area of mine, but we totally see that. I think there's some great accounts out there parents or educators of neurodiverse kids who will call that in and say, you know, from the outside, you're seeing my autistic child on a screen, but what you're not seeing is that this is how they engage with the world. Or one account I follow made the incredible point of for their autistic child, screens were one of the only ways that they could actually experience parts of the world in a way that Mm -hmm. was accessible to them. They could not go to a children's museum. It would be too overwhelming and too much. Mm -hmm. But if they watched a blippy video of him alone in a children's museum playing with bubbles, 
that was like the way they were going to be able to engage with that. And in that way, it was making it accessible to that child. We don't want to feel like we're failing our kids. So if we feel like they need something else or they are not, quote unquote, like worthy of a screen yet, they haven't earned it in some way, you know, their grades are low or they have forgotten to do something or they could be doing something else. I think we hold ourselves and our kids to a very high standard the thing we're quick to remove is that access to, you know, leisure for the sake of leisure or hobbies that are purely just fun and for enjoyment, Mm -hmm. or at least they look that way from the outside world. Because the other side of this is that there are many valid things that people get from screens, as I alluded to, could be regulation, but it can also be a feeling of control, a feeling of power. A lot of kids can do things in digital worlds that they can't do in the real world that can involve really intense critical thinking and executive functioning skills and backwards design. And if we are not willing to see screens as a valid use of time, we can easily miss those things. And then we think, oh, they're just sitting there. Like, I don't even know what they're doing. And then we're missing what they're doing. I'm sure you saw this when you were watching Animal Crossing for three hours. I'm sure you saw so many things where you're like, that's what is going on. It was really eye-opening. And I will say, I still do not love the audio track of Animal Crossing. If the characters could just say words and not that weird little voice Mm -hmm. they do. But that's okay. That's That's my sensory thing with it. But the other thing that I want to hold space for that I think is both an issue to unpack and maybe a very real, like, we're allowed to feel some type of way about this is for a lot of us, like, this is bound up in, like, maybe you hoped your child would share something of yours that the screens seems like the thing that's taken over. So Mm. for me, I never played video games as a kid. Mm. Not because my parents banned them, my younger siblings did play them, but I just wasn't game-oriented. I just wasn't that interested in them. I was a big reader. I did a lot of playing with dolls. And I totally thought I was going to raise two kids who would love reading and dolls. And I can tell you they have no interest in dolls, and I don't actually care that much about that one. They are big readers, and so I've done it. And so I should just be like, great, they love books and also screens. And instead, Hmm. I get very in my head about like, well, they don't want to read the same books I loved as a kid, or maybe does the screen thing take over? And I think it's both I'm allowed to sort of have a moment of sadness of like, oh, that would have been nice if you wanted to read The Secret Garden the way I loved Mm -hmm. as a child. But I can also recognize like the elitism and the classism of that, that like I had put this greater value on this one type of leisure activity versus another. So, yeah, there's just a lot there. But I will say in watching her play Animal Crossing, I could completely appreciate the amount of problem solving, but even like in away from like, oh, are there skills here? I was like, oh, it's just really soothing and beautiful and lovely to run around this island of whimsical animal creatures and flowers. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that I actually just mentioned the secret garden. Like she's spent hours planting gardens all over this island. Right. You know? Like, right. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> I totally understand that feeling of like, oh, I thought we were gonna do this. You know, I built yeah. this up in my head. I think we can completely mourn those things that we are not going to have in exactly the way that we thought we would. Mm-hmm. And I know all caregivers of kids have had those moments where you end up having sort of a a feeling you were hoping to have with your kid, but through a different medium or in a different yes. way. And sometimes we can have those 
moments in things we maybe would not have expected at all, like in playing a video game or in watching a movie that they're obsessed with that we really couldn't care less about, but it invokes something in us. You know, when we stay open to it and see the things that they value as valid because we value the person interested in it, you mm-hmm. know, that can really allow us to then be more open to what is here for them that they're getting out of it. But Mm -hmm. then it also allows us to see these crossovers or look at it in another way that we maybe would have overlooked. I do want to circle back to what you mentioned because I didn't mention it before, but I thought it was really important, which is we hold not only, you know, our kids to a very high standard of like when they can access screens, it's often very conditional and certain parameters, but we also hold the content to a very high standard of what we want to even allow. And the irony is that a lot of the content that adults might think is going to be quote unquote better because it might be academic. I'm using all these air quotes in some way, (laughs) often is not really the case. And the problem with that is that this is really particularly true for educational software, like educational Mm. apps. Those apps are marketing to adults. They are not marketing to kids. Oh, that's so interesting. That makes sense. Because who's going to download it? Who's going to pay for it? The adult. And if I'm seeing an ad for like some app that's like your kid's going to strengthen their reading skills or their math skills, that's not speaking to the child. That's speaking to me, the adult. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to download it, it's because, oh, this must be quote unquote good. This must mean they're going to work on these skills. And so the product that the child produces in that app, once again, has to appeal to the adult. It doesn't need to appeal to the child. The adult who is paying for it needs to feel like they are getting something of value out of it. So they are looking for recognizable academic output. And what does that tend to look like to an adult who's like, show me what you're doing? You know, they have five seconds to look at a screen. Well, it looks like, honestly, pretty perfunctory and not very engaging academic material. Mm -hmm. It looks like matching and... Mm -hmm stuff that kids can really brute force their way through. And it's pretty low level in terms of asking academically. And then we think like, oh, this is good. You know, this is good screen time. They're getting something out of it, but they may honestly not really be getting anything out of it. It may just be reinforcing what they already know and what they Mm -hmm. already don't know. But apps or games that are honestly often were meant to entertain, like Animal Crossing that we've been talking Mm -hmm. about, Those games, because they are really intrinsically motivating, because they are exciting to kids and because kids are interested in doing them and interested in working hard and interested in progressing and being tenacious through them, those games actually can challenge them to do some really interesting and often high-level thinking skills. Will it be exactly the same as stuff they're going to do in school? No. Absolutely not. It doesn't need to be. But it doesn't need to be, right? And again, when we are willing to stay open to those things, then we can see those connections and we can help our kids make those connections. You know, it's not necessarily the game's responsibility to make those direct connections for our kids, but we can recognize those things and then we can make those connections so that now our child who thought 
their only interest was Minecraft, might now realize, oh, actually, their interest is in architecture. Right? Mm. Their interest is in building. And now we can help them find other ways to build, to plan, to look at things at different scales. And oh, all of a sudden now their interest is going in a very different direction. And it probably can go off of a screen and it probably can go into more, quote unquote, academic spaces because we're seeing the skill and looking past maybe our own internalized bias of what a good screen versus a bad screen is. That's like very world shifting for me. Minecraft has also been a recent passion. And obviously I need to find another Saturday to do a deep dive. And I admit this is advice you get all the time, like engage with what they're doing on the screen so you know. And I often don't because I'm using screens to give myself the break. I do think it's great when adults can take the time, but like, you know, much like you, video game time or screen time is filling a purpose for me. Like I am doing stuff during that time. My child often wants me to be more present or more engaged in that time. And there's sometimes I just have to straight up be like, I know this isn't going to be today. Exactly. Like I need this time. And once you get some even really cursory idea of what's going on, even if your idea is like, this game is about racing. And that's like all you know. Right? <laughs> Even then, you can at least be like, how'd you do this time? You know, yeah. how did it go? What track are you going to do? Like, just really kind of general low level stuff. But it still sends the message of like, I am. I do care. Right? I do care. Just like with food, again, you're taking the conflict out of your relationship with the thing your kid loves. Like, they're no longer thinking like, my parent doesn't like that I like this. Just like you're like, I know you love cookies. They're delicious. I love them too. It's removing that sort of morality and judgment from it, which that was the thing I noticed the most was the tenor of our relationship changed over the course of that weekend because instead of me just policing how often she played Animal Crossing, I had actually shown some appreciation for this hobby of hers. She felt seen in a way that I hadn't been seeing her. Absolutely. And we can ask them about what they're doing within screens with the same genuine curiosity that we would ask about what they did on a play date or -hmm. what they're reading about or how soccer practice went or whatever other parts of their lives. I'm an educator, so when I am working with students that I don't necessarily know very well, I'm trying to connect with them. You know, if a child told me they played lacrosse, like, I don't know anything about lacrosse, and I don't really care to know anything about lacrosse, (laughs) but I would ask, right? Like, I would be like, oh, okay, like, what team are you on? I don't even know if there are positions. Are you, is there a (laughs) position? What position do you play? And having that same conversational line around screens, again, sends that message of like, this adult cares about me and Mm -hmm. I can share with them things I care about. And we can even ask, you know, what did you do in the game today that you felt proud of? You don't have to know the minutia. You don't have to know the character names, right? Right, right. What was something that was really hard today? What was something that felt good? Did you make it into a new level today? Like, because then we can talk about the way that felt and the skills they were working on. We can talk more about the parts of their personality that they are showing mm-hmm. through these things, which I think, again, can be really powerful, especially if we want kids who are going to grow up in an incredibly digital world, which is what we have, mm-hmm. like it or not. If we want kids to be able to come to us when something feels unsafe mm-hmm. in a digital world, 
they first have to be able to come to us about something that does feel safe. I think another piece of this conversation we need to talk about is the question of addiction and are the devices designed to keep our attention in ways that we are powerless against. And I guess what I'm wondering is, does this taking a more engaged and less policing restrictive approach to screens maybe help offset some of that? I don't see being engaged or interested or seeing this as, you know, neutral or valid. I don't see that as mutually exclusive with having boundaries or limits around it. And I know you use the word policing, which is definitely a little bit different. But I mean, there are times I feel like I'm policing because I'm like, oh, I'm having to enforce this boundary. Like I haven't had to enforce this for a while. But in the same way that, like I said earlier, I'm going to enforce boundaries around lots of things that I'm not worried about being potential, you know, negative or harmful aspects of their lives. So it's definitely not mutually exclusive with having boundaries or limits. You know, seeing something as morally neutral or valid, that doesn't mean I'm going to allow unfettered access to it. Like I said, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to allow unfettered access to bath. Even reading, you know, we'd be like, you have to go to school. You can't stay here and exactly, read all day. Exactly. Yeah. Or if my child wanted to, you know, attend hours and hours of martial arts practice every day, we'd be having <laughs> conversations around right. how we fit in the rest of our lives and what is needed in the rest of their lives. So we can definitely still have limits around those things. And I think having that combination of boundaries and limits with empathetic understanding that these things are fun and that they have a place Mm -hmm. in our lives, I think is a way that we can kind of cut through. Because if we do go to that power struggle place and we're really trying to minimize and we get to this place of kind of restriction, then it can be hard. If our kids are in this scarcity place and they're like, when am I going to get it again? When am I going to get it again? And then we continue to restrict because they seem increasingly obsessed. And then Mm -hmm. we're just getting further and further away from them. Right. It's just creating this really this chasm between us, which is really not what we want. When my child has a hard time ending screen time, you know, I'm not going to change what my boundaries are necessarily. But as you mentioned, I can empathize and validate like, oh, yeah, I know it's so hard when you have to end when you lost and you don't get to end on a high note. I'm so sorry. It's really hard. And let's Mm -hmm. talk about if this is what you're going to do tomorrow. Like we can still pivot. We can still empathize. We can still have those things while still having boundaries. I don't talk too much about social media, like in terms of kid access on my platform, mostly because like that should be someone's entire platform. Like it's it's so much in and of itself. So, you know, is every screen going to be designed and developed in the same way? Like, of course not. You know, there are going to be screens or kinds of games or kinds of apps that are designed to engage you. And there are going to be ways of engagement that are more sustainable and probably can be just another part of our lives. And they're going to be ones that feel predatory. Mm -hmm. And I think part of our job as caregivers is to give our kids information so that they understand how these things do function differently. And Mm -hmm. with younger kids, if that just means that I don't allow certain things because I have decided that that is not going to be safe for our family, then fine. That's fine. Eventually, that conversation is probably going to look different because it's going to look like a tween or a teen asking, why can't I have something? Right. All my friends are doing this. And I think that feels really, really heightened for adults around technology and screens. I think that there's an assumption that there's 
you know, kind of a social clout or benchmark around access to tech. You know, we want our kids to, obviously we want our kids to like us, <laughs> but we also recognize that our job is not to be their friend. Our job mm-hmm. is to be their parent. But the analogy I've used before is actually, I think our job is to be our child's best friend because a best friend is someone who will tell you when something you're doing is actually not going to work for you and will call you out when they're like, hey, wow, actually what you're doing is like worrying me. My casual friends are not going to say that to me. We don't have that kind of relationship. But my best friend is going to call me on those things Mm -hmm. and is going to put those boundaries in place because they care about me so much. So, yeah, there's always going to be things that we feel are not best for our kids. That's going to be different for every family. And it's okay to decide what those things are. And we want to start from a place of probably a lot of that responsibility being on us. And then we're gradually kind of transferring that over to them in ways we think they can handle in whatever that way that might be. So that eventually we're hoping that they've absorbed, you know, our whys behind things so that they can start making these decisions for themselves. Yes. God, that's helpful. Can we talk a little nuts and bolts about then how do you think about things like time limits, family sharing, you know, the different ways that the screens will let parents control things? What's your approach to working through some of those details? Well, my go-to analogy is that I take sort of a division of responsibility approach to technology. And now I'm very curious. Now I'm like dying to know how you feel about division of responsibility. (laughs) I mean, we're generally pro it with some footnotes is, okay. is my top okay. answer. But I had a listener say, should we take a division of responsibility approach here? So I'm thrilled you brought it up. That tends to be the framework that I use in that I say the adult decides when and how much, like amount of time that's available. So obviously it's a little mm-hmm. bit different than the one for food. You know, adult decides when they're available and for how long. An adult probably decides some parameters around content, right? Mm -hmm. And then a child is going to decide what to do within that screen time. And that might mean choosing what they're watching or doing. Again, Mm -hmm. depends on family. It also will probably mean like literally what they're doing in that screen time. If you have a kid who's playing video games or apps, I'm sure probably most adults listening to this have had moments where they're like, what the heck are they doing? Like (laughs) you look at the screen and they're like, running name to a wall repeatedly or they're seemingly doing nothing. And you're like, what are you doing? But again, there's a big feeling of power and control that comes with just being able to do whatever you want within a boundary environment. And video games Mm -hmm. are very good at that. So kids get to do what they want within the screen time available to them and the content that we've made available. And it's also kids' responsibility to have feelings about <laughs> the screen time that they're allowed to have and when it ends, which I think is hard. You know, we feel like yeah. we allow it and therefore we should be getting a pat on the back. And then our kid is really upset and then they're still annoyed. But honestly, like they're kind of holding up their end of the bargain. You know, our end yeah. of the bargain is to say screen time is over and they're allowed to not like that. And that doesn't mean it's going to change, but they are kind of holding up their end of things there. I tend to recommend that screen time be a predictable part of a routine. That does not mean that it needs to be rigidly scheduled, like it can, if that works. But, you know, some families are going to have not necessarily super routine access to screens, but it is predictable. Like maybe they're allowing screens, you know, 
on long haul travel or during medical appointments. So it's not necessarily like, oh, it's every day or it's every other day, but it's predictable and that kids know when they can expect it. Mm-hmm. And so in my family, it's a daily occurrence and it happens at the same time every day because mm-hmm. I need it. You know, I am making dinner most yeah. of the time during that time. And yeah, for us, that works very well because even when it's hard to end, even when it doesn't end the way my child wants it to, they know, because we've had this for a long time, they know, okay, it's going to be available again tomorrow. It'll be back tomorrow. It'll be back yeah. tomorrow. I can know when to expect it. And even if it's yeah. not an everyday thing, right, having that predictability can also help us be neutral. Like, yes, mm-hmm. I know it's so hard to end and it will be available again at whatever next time. I wonder, too, if you had a parent say to you, well, you know, we only do screen time on the weekends and it's always a huge meltdown at the end of screen time. If someone was saying that to me about cookies, I would say experiment with having cookies every day to see how that goes. Would you say something similar? Yes. And I think I've mentioned this in previously in this conversation, but like you said, taking it and looking at it as information and not as like loaded emotional baggage You know, Mm -hmm. that it's not an indictment of our kids or of us or of the screen or the cookie, right? It's this is information. And Mm -hmm. when I view it as information, I can decide what to do with that information. And I think it's really, really helpful for people to do that around screens because there are so many different kinds (laughs) of screens and every kid and every brain is going to interact with those things differently. And what works for one kid is not going to work for another. You know, I see a lot of recommendations of like, oh, these shows are slow or they're better paced for young kids. And for every kid that thrives, you know, watching something slow paced, I will hear about another kid for whom that's like kryptonite and it just does Mm -hmm. not work for them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that kid or their brain or the show. Just means that is not a good fit. And so, yeah, if you're experiencing some impact of screen time that is not working, then that's time to get curious. And what I recommend is, you know, choose one variable. Mm -hmm. You know, don't go throwing everything out the window and starting all over again. That's hard to pinpoint what's working, what's not. What is one thing you can change that you can kind of change for a period of time to look for differences? You know, I can make sure that we do something big gross motor movement, you know, before or after. I can make sure I give a really concrete warning five minutes before. I can make sure there's a very clear activity planned for afterward. Like we have dinner after screen time. So it's a very clear off ramp to what we're going to. I can try a different show. I can try a different app, change Mm -hmm. one thing and see if it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that way, again, we're showing our kids that we can recognize when something isn't a great fit Mm -hmm. or isn't a sustainable fit for now. (laughs) And here's how we're going to try something different. We can model that in our own use of technology and talk about what changes we're trying to make and how those feel and what's working and what's not what we're going to do differently because we do want this to be a sustainable relationship for them going forward. That's so helpful. And I think it's just interesting and maybe a little challenging for folks. It was certainly challenging for me to think about, like, what if the one thing you changed is more access versus less? Oh, sure. And seeing how that might 
lessen some of this scarcity mindset stuff that could be fueling the negativity. Yes. And I don't know if this is true with food, but when adjusting, whether that means increasing or just changing access to screen time, we might hope that it's like, oh, I'm going to say, yes, we can have it every day. And in the back of our mind, we're like, they better be happy about that, right? (laughs) (laughs) They better be like little angels when it's time to turn it off. And again, that's probably not going to happen because the way we know a boundary exists is by testing it. And Mm -hmm. it will take time. It will take time for them to be able to trust in whatever their new routine is with screens. It's going to take time. And that doesn't make it easier in the moment. Like, I totally get that. That's exactly what happens with food. Once you stop restricting sugar, for some period of time, your kids are going to want to eat giant amounts of sugar because it was restricted before. So, like, they're not going to trust that you're not going to take it away again. So giving more, often in the short term, people are like, it's worse than ever. And then it gets better in some way. So I would think there might be a similar dynamic with experimenting with these details of the screen time approach. Yeah, absolutely. On this issue of content management, mm, oh yeah, I got a lot of questions from listeners about YouTube concerns. Mm-hmm. Do you have any YouTube thoughts for us? Oh, do I? I actually have <laughs> a lot of screen recordings in my phone right now for content I'm creating about this. So shameless plug, these are all free. On my website, which is not very good and has very little on it, but on there I have three long-form blog post guides all about YouTube because I think people don't realize that YouTube can actually be extremely controlled. I think people think that there's YouTube and Kids YouTube and that's it. And really, Kids YouTube is just YouTube, but what they're seeing is really reduced. I feel nervous as a caregiver anytime I am putting the trust in technology to decide what my child has access to. That makes me feel nervous. I want to be aware of what my child has access to, and I want to vet what my child has access to. And people are going to feel differently about this. But for me, that is pretty important to me. I want to know. And screen time is often happening in shared spaces in my household, so I can tell one way or the other. But I also want to set my child up for success and not just be throwing them to the algorithm and wherever it takes them. So, you know, Kids YouTube is a really good start. You select the age of your child in YouTube Kids, and then it's going to show them anything that has been deemed to be appropriate for that age group. And I will just say that there's a lot of stuff out there that you probably will not think is appropriate, and Mm -hmm. you probably will not think is a good fit here for your family because... Also, it's made by anyone, so also just the quality can be bad. (laughs) Like, it should just be not very good. So if you want to go, like, full, most restrictive end, and this is what we do, our child has access to YouTube Kids on a tablet, and their account is set to approved content only, which means that I hand-selected what is on there. And Mm -hmm. you can do individual videos. You can do whole channels, which is actually really nice because if you know a content creator is fine and they have a thousand videos, well, now your kid has access to a thousand videos, but you know they're all okay. So, you know, I've hand-selected probably 10 or 15 videos and then a few channels and my kid can select from those things. And to my kid, that's what YouTube is. Like, Mm -hmm. they have access to those things. They're happy with it. And then they are not when it's on approved content only, they're not fed any suggestions. They can't click to any other videos. 
They can see mm. only what you have put there for them. So it's like old school. It's like, this is what's on the TV, right? <laughs> this is what you got. Okay, this is something I have to look into. The Minecraft fan, we just don't do YouTube because I thought that seemed simpler. But then she figured out she could watch Minecraft YouTube videos through Pinterest. Oh. So I see your point about don't yeah. let technology <laughs> be in charge. And yeah. I'm sort of like, okay, it seems fine if you're just watching people play Minecraft, but this seems like a better way to do it. It is not an easy process. It is robust, but it is not intuitive. So mm -hmm. I have three different guides. I have one that's about just regular adult YouTube and how you can still restrict it. I okay. have one about YouTube kids and the ways you can use and restrict YouTube kids. And then I have one about family sharing. And that's really more for kids, families who have like tweens and teens and that you can let your older child have access to regular adult YouTube, but still restrict what they can see and also monitor what they are okay. viewing. Whether or not you choose to look at everything they view, obviously up sure. to you. I just also have to say it is maddening, like, the mental load of all of this, cool. of, like, figuring out, you know, I mean, because we just set up the Apple family sharing on the kids' iPads, and that was, like, a week of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> I mean, it is helping, but it's, like, yeah, there's a lot. I completely understand when I know a lot of families who are, like, absolutely we're not allowing Roblox because they know that the amount of work it would take to be able to say yes to it in any way that would feel safe is mm -hmm. so much that they're like, I can't do that. I can't open the can of worms. Right. I yeah. cannot open the can of worms. Yeah. And so if therefore it's simpler to just say no, that's also totally valid. And I also understand why then people allow it without restriction because yeah. you're in a bind or they found it some other way and you're like, well, Pandora's box is open now. And Oh my gosh, to close it would be this huge thing. I totally get it. And you can like you can take those baby steps any moment that you feel ready. It can be little bits at a time. You don't have to dive in all the way to the deep end all at once. So Ash, what is your butter for us today? I have been revisiting some podcasts that I just love and I just Ooh. can't stop listening to. I've been like re-binging them. And actually one, we were just talking about all of the work that goes into making these decisions and mental load. And so if you're someone that feels like mental load is a lot of what you're dealing with, really highly recommend the Time to Lean podcast. Really love the conversations that they have there. And I have an early episode with them, actually. I'm not mentioning it for that reason, but I find myself listening to their episodes a lot. And my favorite sort of like pop culture podcast that I come back to again and again called Fighting in the War Room, mostly about movies. Ooh. A lot of my free time is spent watching movies. So now that we're at a end of a year, beginning of a new year, I'm always here for people's like wrap ups and best ofs. Mm -hmm. I love that kind of thing. So I've been revisiting their best of lists. But if you're someone who likes movies or pop culture, Fighting in the War Room, that's a great one. I don't know either of these podcasts, and I'm excited to get into them. My better today is a art thing I'm doing with my kids that is super low stakes, and I thought it would be fun to talk about because I learned about it on Instagram. Oh. So it is a great example of technology can 
lead us to these other places like you were talking about. So the thing we're doing is sticker stories. I learned about it from kids art influencer Mary Cherry, who I'm a big fan of. She has really fun content of all different kinds of art projects you can do with kids. And she also talks very practically about, like, if you are afraid of glitter and mess, which a lot of us are, like Uh how to engage with art with your kid in a more doable way. And so sticker stories is literally just putting stickers on paper. That's all it is. Like, anyone can do this. Okay. But it is, like, weirdly, like, I use addictive in a positive way. Like, it is... (laughs) so soothing and we just have a pile of stickers in the middle of the table and I got these little notebooks I'll link to them in the show notes that we just like make little sticker pictures and you just like make a page of stickers and then you turn the page and you make another little page of stickers and I can't explain why it's so magical but it's so relaxing if you are someone who enjoys jigsaw puzzles or any kind of crafty thing but I would say even if you're not crafty it's just soothing. And it's one of those good activities that's kind of a parallel play activity with your kids. And so you're all kind of like doing stickers and then they kind of start chatting with you about things because you're busy. You're not making eye contact. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's been really lovely. So we just have like a whole mess of stickers on our dining room table now. And if I just sit down and start doing it, one of them will stop by and do stickers for a few minutes and it's great. Oh, I so. love that. I wrote that down because we're like a family where we end up. I was like this as a kid where we have stickers that we like literally will never use them. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. there's this feeling of like, I can't. They're too you know, pretty. They're too pretty. I don't know what I put them on. And yeah, I can see my kid that came straight from me. So we have like this yeah. drawer of stickers, yeah. from you know, goodie bags or whatever. And I'm like, what are we going to do with these? I think that's part of what's great about it is like you just start sticking them. And because you're doing it in like a little notebook, you feel sort of, I think, I don't know, I felt like I could just like go for it. Like, and so then it feels like decadent, right? Because you're finally <sighs> using the good stickers. Yes, <laughs> Totally. But now we've used the good stickers. Like now I'm like, I need more stickers. So I'll link to some good sticker finds I've found lately too. But yeah, make little patterns. You can make pictures. You know, one of my kids will end up drawing. She likes drawing more than sticker. You know, like it's whatever. But something about the process is so soothing and joyful. And thank you, Instagram, for that gift. Oh, that sounds so nice. Ash, tell folks where we can follow you and how we can support your work. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I live mostly on Instagram at The Gamer Educator. I have a website, thegamereducator.com, but the vast majority of what I do is all on Instagram. And yeah, come join our little corner of the internet. It's pretty nice over there. Perfect. It's a wonderful corner. I highly recommend it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review. It really helps new folks find the show. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter so you never miss an episode and get all of our essays and other content. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. 
Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet, body liberation journalism.